This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the urit moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to a special cybersecurity episode of Leader ReadyCast. This is part of our COVID-19 minicast series. And while much of the focus these days is on the coronavirus as well as the street protests, those with their eyes open are seeing an increase in cyber threats. And to help us understand what's going on and more important, what leaders can do about it is Kian Williams. He is founder and managing director of Cyber Leadership and Strategy Solutions and an influential voice in the cybersecurity community. Kian, welcome to the program. Hey, Eric, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. No, it's really good to talk to you again. I'm, I'm glad we're able to connect here. Please give us your view of the situation right now. From a leadership perspective, what does a threat environment look like now? What's going on? You know, one of the interesting things about everything that's going on from a security perspective is that there's nothing new under the sun. You know, we have things that are drawing and capturing everybody's attention, but it doesn't change the threat actors that exist out in the threat landscape. It doesn't change the motivations of people. Attackers still are going after weak targets so they can get access to data. Very often it's a revenue generating activity. You take something like ransomware, the return on my investment for targeting an organization, encrypting all of their data, is that they're going to pay me to get their data back. And so regardless of what's going on for people socially, whether it's things in the United States or even looking at places internationally, attacks have gone up because people have taken their eye off the ball and they're not really paying attention to their defenses anymore. And is that, I say, a matter of letting themselves get distracted or focusing on the, the, the big threat that's stopping in front of them and, and forgetting that persistent threat? Well, I think it's a combination of two things. If you look at it from a business perspective, COVID, as an example, has had a drastic impact on the revenue of some businesses. And so if I was in the hospitality industry, if I was in the travel industry, if I was in the oil and gas industry, the revenue that I customarily have available is no longer available, which pinches the capability that I have to focus on cyber defense because cybersecurity is not the only thing that's happening within an organization. When you look at enterprise risk management, it is very rare that cybersecurity is the top risk that the organization cares about. And so with limited revenue, I now have less ability to invest in managing all the risks that the organization is facing. And so if there's a degradation in investment in security, then there's going to naturally be an increase in the number of successful attacks that happen to an organization. And so on one hand, it's just economics that are generating this. On the other hand, organizations are becoming distracted by everything else that's happening. You have social response, people feel compelled to shift their priorities so they can respond to the things that are happening in the environment. And sometimes shifting priorities cause organizations to take their eye off the ball from a security risk management perspective. And that's also adding to the increase in successful attacks. Well, I think if there's one thing that, that COVID should teach us is that there are risks out there that aren't a big deal until suddenly they are. Uh, and this sounds like one of those. So 
As we move into this new, more distributed world of work, or in some cases, returning to offices after an extended absence and getting used to new configurations and new ways of doing things, what should leaders be thinking about when it comes to cybersecurity? How do they set their priorities and get that balance right, given the, the volatile economic and social environment? Well, there are tried and true approaches that are really going to help the situation. For example, the Australian Signals Directorate said years ago that you can stop 85% of targeted attacks if you do whitelisting, which is a very dedicated approach to controlling what can run in your environment, if you patch your systems in a timely manner, and if you have good access control. Those facts remain valid even in the midst of what we're facing today. The challenge that I've seen in my global travels working with clients and in my own business is that if you aren't doing the basic fundamental things, it makes it very difficult to respond to new threats, to new attacks, to new situations. My advice to any business owner, and this is not talking to security people, but talking to business people, is you have to maintain security as a priority for the organization. And thinking strategically, you have to consider what is the long-term plan so that we can invest properly and make sure that new inputs don't cause us to completely lose control of the situation. This is just a new input having people working from home, but it doesn't change the fact that you have to have good access control. Now we're just saying that from an access control perspective, it's not people in the corporate environment, it's people who are at a remote location that I have no control over as a company that is going to facilitate access to my corporate information. In reality, if you look at it from a bigger picture perspective, home users connecting to my corporate environment remotely has no different security model than corporate users connecting to all of my resources in the cloud. It allows you to think more broadly about where is my data, where are the people that need to access the data, and what is the right way to facilitate their secure interaction with things that are important to the organization. And so you sound very calm about this. I want to know what, what's keeping you awake at night these days? What are, what are some of the, the risks or the, or the responses to risks that are really worrying you? Well, it's, it's not really a worry, but my greatest concern really is if we focus on the United States specifically, there are a lot of calls to drastically transform law enforcement in the short term without thinking about the impact of those changes. That influences cybersecurity from a physical protection perspective. If we have less law enforcement, Naturally, crime is going to go up. There is an economic relationship between the two. The FBI is the number one investigator of cybercrime in the United States. If they are distracted or if all of their resources are consumed by responding to the unrest, naturally cybercrime is going to go up and cybercrime is facilitated by nation states and um, organized crime because of the amount of revenue that comes in. Now I have a very important part of the ecosystem that does not have the time or the resources to help with the response, which means that there's a greater pressure on me as an organization and on my peers as the security leaders in other organizations to be very dedicated to their defensive capabilities and to the just general incident handling process that's going to help them identify an attacker in their environment quickly, contain it, and provide remediation and know that you're not really going to have outside help because the people who would normally help you from the outside are investing their time in other areas. 
And so do you think we might address some of that? And again, we don't know where the, the reprioritization of, of law enforcement is going to go. Uh, that's still very much unfolding. Um, but could some of this be remedied with greater uh, cross-boundary collaboration and what we call meta-leadership connectivity uh, within industries or across sectors to, uh, to share best practices faster or to share early warning signals uh, earlier? Are there ways that we, by working close, more closely together, we could compensate for some of that? Well, I had a conversation about this yesterday with a group of security executives. One of the challenges when you talk about information sharing initiatives and the FBI and InfraGuard have been promoting this for years. You have very mature information sharing and analysis centers, also known as ISACs, yeah. for a lot of industries like financial services or oil and gas. But even in the midst of those sharing capabilities that have been set up, there is still the corporate competition aspect. You know, am I going to harm my competitive position in the landscape by disclosing to my competitors that I have encountered something that could potentially damage them? You know, human nature says that I'm gonna keep it to myself so they can suffer their con the consequences on their own because helping them out puts me in, in, in a disadvantage because now they get to respond earlier. And so from a professional perspective, security professionals and risk management professionals are very invested in sharing, but from a competitive legal perspective, the general counsel of some organizations see it as anti-competitive or as a disadvantage because they're allowing their competitors to get ahead of them in the um, economic race. Yes, and I, I also have done a fair amount of work in the, in the oil and gas business, and I know the ISACs well. And one of the things I know that they at least promote, whether they carry through with it or not, is a, perhaps a different question. But in the physical security space is there are no secrets in safety and security. And perhaps this may spur some uh, attempts to come up with a pre- or post-competitive space that uh, lets them share in, within, within boundaries that don't compromise anyone's competitive position, but that actually benefits everyone because... Uh, I, I think as we've seen, and you talked about hospitality, oil and gas, these various sectors, right now they're, they're, su they're suffering as a whole. Um, and it, when there's a major incident, it does, does tend to be the sector as a whole that gets hit. Um, so that's just, that's just a hope. That's a, I'm sending that out into the, uh, into the internet uh, ethersphere here to uh, hope that we can spur some, finding, finding ways to share, share things without compromising competitive positions. Uh, it, would, it would seem that would make a lot of sense, and it always does. I know I've had conversations similar to the one you just had, where everybody shakes their head yes, and then they can't find a way to do it, uh, which, which is a bit frustrating. So you've mentioned this. I think that we, it's pretty clear there are a lot of distractions right now for people at the top of organizations. How do you advise cybersecurity professionals to lead up effectively so they can keep that organization well protected? They can get make sure that they are getting at least the the, the core resources they need in order to keep things safe. How, how do you manage that leading up to a to a, a CEO or other executive who might not quite understand all the intricacies of, of security? Well, one of the best tools that a security executive has when they're trying to communicate up to the CEO and the board of directors is information. Um, one of the things that we teach in a class that I have the blessing to facilitate is just the good quality and the good construction of your metrics. You know, um, if I give a hat tip to Marcus Random, 
who used to be the CTO at um, Tenable, you know, he used to always argue that there is a huge difference between an actual metric, which is going to inform and direct resources and interesting information, which doesn't allow you to do anything with it. And so you take the proverbial, how many penetrations did the firewall stop? I have no influence over outside sources. The firewall is just a tool that is not going to be valuable information for the board. It would make much more sense to focus on things that are actionable that we can influence from the inside. You know, things like to what extent is the configuration of our firewall influencing the amount of things that get into the environment that shouldn't be there. It requires a little more thought. It requires a little more finesse in pulling good information out of the data. For us corporately, we do some fun things with volatility analysis and standard deviation, just like you would do for financial investing, understanding the volatility of the financial status of a company that I might invest in also helps you identify the volatility of the situation from a security perspective so that you can identify outliers where I'm using math and statistical analysis to identify the difference between normal and something that's two standard deviations from the mean is abnormal and requires additional investigation and additional action. I think outside the scope of security. And so security is coming to the table with things that don't matter. It is never going to be able to compete with other things that are happening in the boardroom that are very impactful for operations, legal risk, vendor management, and all other manner of things that are concerns depending on the industry that we're talking about. That's a really important point you make that that notion of, of controlling the metric and making sure the metric is meaningful, seeing that over and over again and not certainly not just in the cyber world, but uh, if, if people and particularly those without great expertise, uh, as you may be leading up to say to a board has, has more general knowledge, uh, if they get locked into a metric they tend to hold on to it like a lifesaver. And if it's the wrong metric, you can spend a lot of time feeding that beast uh, when it isn't gonna have any impact. And I, I like the approach you describe of really figuring out which, which metrics matter and then driving to that and making sure people understand what normal looks like, what abnormal looks like and where they should be paying attention. Because particularly leading up to a board, as you mentioned, whose agendas tend to be overcrowded uh, and they have limited attention spans you've got uh, a short period of time in which to, <clears throat> to grab them and, and with something that's compelling and actually getting them to act. I think that's, that's, that's great advice. Uh, any, any other tips along that line what, um, in terms of managing that relationship? Well, getting to know people is also important. You know, I, I have the pleasure of being on a board of directors now. It's a not-for-profit board. It's not the same thing in terms of the difficulty of the decisions that we're making that you would have for one of your Fortune 100 corporate boards. But the idea is still the same. You know, the quality of the information, the timeliness of the information, how you get it in front of people. Um, any organization that has committees on the board is gonna be a great place for security leaders to start so that you start to develop a relationship with the person who is the chairperson of the risk committee is a much better approach than coming to the board of directors once per quarter for 15 minutes as a stranger and you're just reading information on the slide. You know, if I have a good relationship with somebody, that relational aspect is going to allow them to carry the message on my behalf, even if I'm not there. 
and then that's where the magic starts to happen. You know, the National Association of Corporate Directors, ISO 31000, the COSO framework, you know, there are all kinds of enterprise risk management standards that describe the requirement for risk oversight to start at the board level. And the board is accustomed to evaluating risk broadly, but it requires a relationship between security and somebody on the board who cares about risk so that the board understands from a security context what's important beyond compliance, what are the right things that we're going to do, what are the right investments to make to support the mission. The entire objective of security is to allow the mission to go forward without interruption. And I think the more security people move away from compliance and are more mission oriented and business oriented, you're going to have better conversations, you're going to have better relationships, it's going to produce better outcomes over time, regardless of the industry and regardless of the organization within an industry. That's great advice. I have one last question for you and it's of more of a, a personal nature and then I, I know you do a lot of mentoring. What, what advice are you giving to people right now that you, you mentor? What, what, has anything changed as we've gone through COVID in terms of how you help people think about their futures? Well, one of the things that I encourage everybody to do, whether they're entry-level people or executives is read. You know, the conversation that we've had today could have been very technical we were able to have a more business oriented conversation because 80% of my reading is business reading, not technical reading. You know, um, I forget who said it, but um, there was a really smart person once upon a time that said, if you read one book a month about a subject, within a few years, you're going to be an expert on that subject because you're constantly ingesting good information and then you have something to balance the news media against you know, press releases, other stories. Now I'm just not a casual consumer of the information, but I've read authoritative sources and I've invested a lot of time so that I know what I'm talking about. Security people have spent decades mastering technology, but there is no business content in security certifications and security education. If I go to get a master's in cybersecurity, 90% of my coursework is going to be technical. So most of the people that I have the opportunity to mentor are in the security profession, and I encourage them to read as much as they can about business, how business works, how the board of directors works. You know, Boards That Lead is one of my favorite books on my bookshelf, so I tip my hat to the professors from Harvard that put that book together. But understanding how a business works is going to put you in a better position to communicate the value of what you offer to that business, whether I'm in security, whether I'm in human resources, whether I'm in IT, whether I'm in engineering, ultimately I have to know how does my work apply in the greater context of the organization that I'm supporting. And that's the best thing any professional can do, whether they're an entry level person or an executive. Well, that is great advice. And as one also does a fair amount of reading, I think we can never encourage people to read too much um, it's a great idea, and you're right, to, to have that broader context and understand uh, the world in which you are operating beyond the technical aspects is absolutely critical to having influence beyond your authority and, and your ability to get people to support your priorities. I want to thank Ian Williams of Cyber Leadership and Strategy Solutions for joining me today to share his insights. You can learn more about Ian and his work at class-llc.com. And as always, you can learn more about the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, including our new online crisis leadership courses at npli.sbh.harvard.edu.
Until next time, always be ready to lead. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to leave.